The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person or on live stream. For details, go to fapc.org. And now, here is Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston. Let us pray. Gracious God, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we might hear with joy what it is that you are saying to us this day. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This year, in the season of Lent, Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church is exploring the vocabulary of belief. We're looking at words that religious people have used for millennia. In, in the past, these words have drawn believers deeper into relationship with God. Might they do the same for us? Should we tattoo them on our hearts? Last Sunday, we considered the word scapegoat, and we talked about the human propensity to blame others for our own frustrations and our own failings. Today, on the fourth Sunday in Lent, our attention turns to a term that is sprinkled all across the pages of Scripture. It occurs as a noun, and a verb, and an adjective, and it appears over a thousand times in certain English translations of the Bible. It's a word that the wider culture associates with Christianity. It's a word that repels some people. It's become a punchline for others, and still it thrums with power. To some, this word may be the only way to explain what's wrong with the world. Our word for today is sin. For a three-letter, one-syllable, tiny morsel of a word, sin plays an outsized role in our faith. It, it also happens to be one of the most difficult terms to pinned down in belief's vocabulary. In part, sin is complicated because its biblical DNA is complicated. There are at least nine different Hebrew words and ten different Greek words that we translate into English as the word sin. These 19 lexical ancestors flavor the meaning of sin in distinct ways. Sometimes the biblical word for sin is best rendered as trespass. You've wandered into forbidden territory. You have trespassed. Sometimes sin is best described as a debt, as a red entry in our soul's ledger, pointing to some wrong that we did in the past, 
forgive us our debts. Sometimes sin refers to actions that harm others. Sometimes the biblical word sin evokes the breaking of laws. Sometimes sin refers to the very worst sort of human behavior, out-and-out wicked deeds. And sometimes biblical sin, well, it seems less demonic and more befuddled. (laughs) You've left the path of righteousness. You've become lost. You've gone astray. You've sinned. Sometimes sin in Scripture is nothing more or nothing less than an impure thought. And then, of course, there are times in Scripture when sin refers not to an individual's misdeeds, but to widespread moral failure. A sinful society conducts itself in ways that run contrary to God's will and God's justice. In a moment, I'm going to read Exodus 34. And this, my trivia-loving friends, is one of the most important passages in the Bible. Why do I say that? Well, first off, Exodus 34 is a place where God talks about who God is. God says, this, in a nutshell, is me. And this sort of self-revelatory thing is rare, and so we take note. Second, Exodus 34 describes God's reaction to a very important topic, our topic for the day, sin. And finally, Exodus 34 is significant because it is the passage in the Bible that is most quoted by other parts of the Bible. Exodus 34 can be found in the prophets, in the Psalms, and in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Why so much love for this text in the good book? You tell me. As you listen, think about what stands out to you in this passage. What strikes you as really important here, as needing to be repeated, as worth tattooing on your heart? Listen now, my friends, for God's word to you as it comes to us first from Exodus chapter 34, beginning with the sixth verse. God passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Our second text for today continues our pattern this Lent 
First, we've been looking at our word for the day in a passage from the Hebrew Bible, and then we have been listening to a story from John's Gospel to continue the conversation. So let us turn now to the ninth chapter of John, beginning with the first verse. Listen again for God's word to you. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and, and beg? Some were saying, it is he. Others were saying, no, but it's someone like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Okay, one last bit of prologue before we roll up our sleeves. I want to admit that I have nested a mini sermon series within our larger Lenten sermon series. Last week we talked about the word scapegoat and the way in which humans try to offload their sin onto other people. Two weeks from now on Palm Sunday, we're going to talk about the word atonement. For Christians, atonement is a fancy way of asking, what does Jesus have to do with sin? How does Christ, as scripture asserts, take our sin away? As such, today is the middle part of a three-sermon sandwich, a sin sandwich. Oh, so tasty. <laughs> Today, I'm hoping that we can address three questions. First, what is sin? Second, how do we experience sin in this world? And finally, what does God do about sin? Part one, what is sin? In the first sermon in this series, we talked about how certain words in the good book are difficult to pin down. Sometimes words like spirit, 
feel slippery in our heads because they're poetic, because they're trying to describe something ephemeral. Today, I would like us to consider other reasons that important words can feel like moving targets. Certain words have so much history to them, have been used in so many different ways by so many different cultures that these words have, as French philosopher Paul Ricoeur once put it, a surplus of meaning. To illustrate this, would you picture in your head the American flag for a moment? What does the flag mean? There are, of course, more ways to answer this question than there are people in this room and far-flung sheep watching online. One person might say, well, that's the national symbol of the United States. And someone else might start to sing, oh, say, can you see? Another might frown, that, my friend, is an emblem of imperialism. Someone might point out that the stripes represent the 13 original colonies. Another might recall that during the Civil War, half of the once United States of America rejected that flag and chose to march under another symbol. Someone might somberly say, my son died for that flag. There are an overwhelming number of stories and sentiments attached to a symbol like the American flag. Our most important symbols and our most important words really do have a surplus of meaning. And that's what makes these symbols so powerful. It's also what makes us kind of nervous. In America, there's a lot at stake when it comes to saying what the stars and stripes mean. And within Christianity, there's a lot at stake in defining the word sin and in settling on a list of human activities that we consider to be sinful. Scattered across the stories and laws, songs and prophecies of scripture, the Bible points to a great variety of different human behaviors as being in some way sinful. Scripture speaks of transgressions in the marketplace. Don't cheat your customers with false weights. There are passages that define idolatry, sexual immorality, drunkenness, witchcraft, jealousy, and theft as being sin. The biblical prophets, Amos, Jeremiah, Isaiah, offer a broad take on sin. They speak about communal transgression, a sort of societal rot that could bring God's judgment down on an entire city or nation. The prophets shake their heads when, when pointing to the mistreatment of widows, orphans, and outsiders. They claim that the plight of those with the fewest resources serves as a barometer, indicating how deeply a society is immersed in sin. 
Sometimes the sins described by scripture feel truly egregious, like not offering food to the hungry or care to a wounded person. And at other times, the sins listed there seem strange and petty. Do not trim the hair at the side of your head. There are passages in the Bible that refer to specific behaviors as abominations. For example, eating shellfish is described as an abomination in the book of Leviticus. And then there's a subsequent passage in scripture, in this case one from the book of Acts, that presents eating shellfish as being acceptable. Thank God my love for shrimp and grits is redeemed. <laughs> there are times in the good book when Jesus is accused of sinning. At one point, Christ is scolded for not properly observing the Sabbath. And Jesus responds by asking people to think about why God gives us laws in the first place and to think about what sin really looks like. Golly, talk about a surplus of meaning. Sin has got meaning to burn. So summary time, what do we know thus far? There are a lot of different words for sin in the Bible. There are a lot of different behaviors in scripture described as being sinful. And these diverse and changing perspectives make it difficult for people of faith to answer the question, what is sin? But that doesn't mean we are ready to give up on the challenge. In fact, most of us want to play a role in defining what counts as sin. This is true. Have you heard of the Overton window? James Overton introduced this concept in the 1990s while serving on the staff of a political think tank in Michigan. Overton observed that on any given political topic, just pick one, there are typically a range of ideas being discussed in the court of public opinion. And at the same time, there are opinions and ideas that fall outside the bounds of what most people are willing to consider and debate. In other words, the Overton window assesses the shifting boundaries of public conversation. It asks, what possibilities are mainstream political figures willing to debate? What ideas are Americans actually willing to consider? So here's an example. Mainstream America is currently engaged in a rolling debate about the right approach to policing in this country. Within this conversation, a central cluster of questions keeps cropping up. How can we train and support good cops? How can we reduce violent crime, protect family businesses, and promote safe streets? How can we eliminate racism and stop violence being perpetrated by those who are called to serve and protect, especially against people of color? 
And how can we ensure that all people in this society feel safe during a traffic stop? The wider society sets a sort of loose boundary around this conversation, and that's the Overton window. By showing a willingness to debate certain questions about policing while pushing others to the side. In this case, most people are not debating, should we defund the police? Or should we require that every adult in this country carry a gun? Most, but not all people, have pushed those questions to the side. And this brings us to Overton's most important insight. The edges of mainstream debate, the boundaries of the Overton window are constantly changing. There are certain issues that the wider society is not, at this moment in time, willing to consider. And yet, because the edges of the window are not static, all kinds of forces in a society are trying to tug at the window's frame. People are forever trying to change the nature of the conversation, trying to influence what counts as civil discourse. In a way, every news organization has its own Overton window. Consider the slogan that appears on the masthead of the New York Times all the news that's fit to print. It suggests that the paper's editors have been busy pulling together and deciding what is fit to be publicly debated. Other editorial boards and news organizations have the same attitude, although they, of course, look at the world through different windows. And they have a different sense of what we ought to be talking about. I think Overton's concept helps explain the way we think about and talk about sin. By and large, human beings have no trouble believing that sin is real. In fact, sin is the easiest of all religious concepts to embrace. We don't need to be convinced that people, especially other people, are capable of doing wrong. In fact, we want to talk about what is morally right and morally wrong. We want to talk about sin, but when we start up our conversations, it quickly becomes apparent to us that we are looking at the world through different moral windows. What explains this? Two things. First, the scope of what people consider to be sinful varies depending on a person's upbringing, education, politics, community of faith. And add to this the fact that what counts as sin has changed over time and across cultures. Sin really is a moving target. The second reason people see different vistas of sin when looking out their moral windows goes like this. Generally speaking, 
we are much more interested in enumerating, in confessing other people's sins than we are at focusing on our own. It's easier and less existentially painful for us to point out the sins being committed by our neighbors than it is to own up to or wrestle with our own brokenness. This tension, let's talk about your feelings and not mine, brings us back to our initial question. What is sin? Classically, theological heavyweights like St. Augustine and, and Julian of Norwich do not try to define sin by listing a set of forbidden behaviors or by engaging in we are good, they are bad debates. In, instead, these saints speak about sin as if it were a disease of the soul. Sin is a condition, a condition that all human beings share. All have sinned, says the Apostle Paul, and fallen short of the glory of God. Part two, how do we experience sin in this world? If sin is more than a list of things that we've done wrong, and as we pray every week in our prayer of confession, the things we've left undone, then what is it? Well, sometimes the church speaks about sin as if it were a destructive force, a malevolent power that seeks to disconnect us from God and each other. And I know it sounds depressing to declare that we all live in a state of sin, but this morning I want to go there. I would like us to consider whether there's truth to this claim. Let's start with Exodus 34. This past week when I read Exodus 34 to a few different people, every listener recoiled at the second half of the passage, the part where God says, I will not clear the guilty. I will visit the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, at first glance, this verse, this sentiment, may strike us as horrendously unfair. Why should a child suffer for the sins of a parent? Who, who thinks that's a good idea? Surely not God. Over time, though, I've begun to wonder if this passage simply describes the way things are. And if so, it speaks an unpopular but deep truth. Sin is insidious. Once sin worms its way into a system or a family or a workplace or a culture, it can work its caustic evil for generations. In 2021, this church 
invited Dr. Esau McCauley, African-American biblical scholar, to address us in the Gatto Lecture. At a lunch prior to the lecture, Dr. McCauley and I had an opportunity to talk about race, racism, and the legacy of slavery in America. We talked about contemporary issues too. We discussed driving while black. We talked about racism in the academy and in the church. And we also talked about the debilitating psychological effect that racism has on, well, everyone. Whenever I have a testy interaction with someone, Dr. McCauley said, I wonder if my race is the issue. I cannot see into the heart of the other person. I don't know if they're having a bad day, if I truly just stepped on their marigolds, or if they're acting out some racist agenda. I hate that I think this way. It's psychologically exhausting, Macaulay continued. At the same time, I cannot escape this country's history, and I cannot escape my own experience. The American Civil War ended in 1865, 158 years ago. And yet we all know that Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox did not bring an end to what many call America's original sin. Exodus 34 declares that the sins of parents will visit the third and fourth generation. Today's passage, if you, if you listen to it carefully, it makes sin sound like a ghost. It haunts us. For three and four generations, it haunts us. Honestly, I wonder if a dozen generations will be enough to release us from the collective trauma carved into our souls by slavery and Jim Crow. At times I've wept at how impossible it feels to free ourselves from the sin that Esau describes. I say all this to highlight what I think is a painful truth. Human beings can harm each other in ways that last. There are sins that ripple and ripple and ripple through families like a malevolent stone tossed into a DNA pool. There are sins that twist and, and torture entire societies for decades, for centuries. Realizing this, and we know this, people of faith pose a quite natural follow-up question. So is the collective pain that we feel in the face of sin, is that God. Is that what Exodus 34 is talking about? Does God pay us back? Does God slowly and steadily punish us for being bad? Part three. What does God do about sin? In the Gospel of John, Jesus encounters a man who was born blind. His disciples asked, who sinned that this man was born blind? His parents or the man? Neither, says Jesus. Jesus dismisses the notion that the man's suffering is punishment for anybody's sin. And then Christ heals the man with some mud and some spit. 
Is Jesus pushing back against the truth of Exodus 34? Doesn't the text say God is in the punishment business? Well, listen to it again. God says, I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. In his classic book on Christian doctrine, theologian Shirley Guthrie writes, sin is not the main theme and central emphasis of the Christian faith. The main theme and central emphasis of our faith is reconciliation. It's forgiveness. In Exodus 34, God says, this is who I am. This is the kind of God that I am. I am merciful and gracious. I overflow with love and faithfulness. Yes, the effects of sin may ripple through your lives for a few generations, but, says God, at the heart of this most important biblical passage, but I extend my love to a thousand generations. My love, says God, is so much bigger than your sin. What does that look like? What does that feel like? Quick example. A few years ago, a member of this congregation admitted to me that while he enjoys the music and the sermons, he comes to worship every week for the prayer of confession. I need to own my mistakes, he explained, and then more than anything, I need to hear that I am forgiven, that I'm loved. The assurance of pardon, he said to me, man, that's where it's at. It always feels like, tastes like sweet rain. Don't all of us sinners crave that? rain? Don't we all want to taste it? Go forth from this place as people who have been washed by the steadfast rain of God's love. And as you go, have courage. Hold fast to what is good. Do not return evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted Support the weak, help the suffering, honor all people, love and serve the Lord. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.